because we all know that uh, what I'm doing, what we're all doing here, is not something, you know, uh, it's not something, a very casual uh, topic like that. Although, um, what I'm doing here is in the form of, not in the form of teaching, but in the form of more, you know, a casual discussion of these things. Because as you all know, that, you know, uh, this is what I am. <coughs> I simply get the uh, got the instructions or teachings from my great teachers. The only thing is that myself lacking, uh, you know, the proper implementation. But you don't have to worry about it. Because at least I think I've recorded, you know, uh, quite well for my teachers. Right? So during my uh, staying there with my teachers, I'm not supposed to keep my eyes, you know, ears blocked. So somehow it, <laughs> it kept on entering into my ears and registered my brain. So I think that is enough for you, you know. So and uh, of course with you know with what I say, and we all if we pr put practice, put them into practice, surely that's going to go, you know, great benefit, great benefit. There's no doubt. And as we did for the emptiness teaching, we're going to read. So what I have here distributed to you is uh, basically the benefits of generating bodhicitta and um, the, the, you know, the other good things in relation to bodhicitta. So we're going to read through this together. <coughs> I will say the, uh, the titles and then after saying that, and we read together. Again, I say the titles and I read, uh, read, read together. The householder Viradada requests the Sutra states If whatever merit there is in the mind of enlightenment has formed, it would fill the entire world of the sky and then exceed it. Were someone to fill the Buddhist realms with jewels as numerous as the grains of sand of the Ganges and offer this to the protector of the world, Far superior is the merit and offering of one who, in joining this, reverently generates the altruistic mind of Bodhicitta. There is no limit to the merit in this. Compendium of the Teaching Sutra. Bhagavan, Bodhisattvas should be. Bhagavan, if Bodhisattvas grasp and know one teaching, they will have all the Buddha's teachings in the palm of their hand. What is this one teaching? It is great compassion. Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise of the greatest part of enlightenment. Therefore, the Mahayana is the cause of all glories of self and others, the panacea that heals all pain, the great path traveled by all the masters, nourishment for all beings who see, hear, remember, and come in contact with it, and that which has a great skill in means that engages you in others' welfare and thereby achieves as byproducts your own welfare in its entirety. One who enters it ponders as Allah has well found what I'm seeking, enters the supreme vehicle with all efforts you have. The Compendium of the Perfections The supreme vehicle is realized by genuine wisdom. From it, the omniscience of the great Buddha arose. He is like the eye of the world. His radiance like the rays of the rising sun. A guide to the Bodhisattva's life. It is like the supreme gold making elixir, 
for it transforms the unclean body we have taken into the priceless jewel of a Buddha form. Therefore, firmly seize this awakening mind. I bow down to the body of anyone. I direct you in that sort of who brings to happiness even those who harm him. It is the quintessential butter churned from the milk of the sublime teaching. Force of non-virtues is great and extremely intense. Beside the altruistic mind of enlightenment, what virtue can overcome it? By the fire in the end of eon, it will instantly consume grave and negativities. All other virtues are like a plantain tree. After bearing fruit, they perish. <coughs> Enlightenment, like a rich grinding cream, always bears fruit and never dies but flourish. Like a blind person's jewel in a heap of garbage, by coincidence the mind of Bodhicitta has arisen in me. Those who wish to destroy the many sorrows of their conditioned existence, those who wish all beings to experience multitude of joys, and those who wish to experience much happiness, should never forsake the awakening mind. Just as a flash of lightning on a dark, cloudy night for an instant brightly illuminates all, likewise in this world, through the might of Buddha, a wholesome thought rarely and briefly appears. Acharya Chandrakit is entering into the middle way. Compassion alone is seen as the seed of Buddha's accidental harvest, as water for its germination, and as the maturation in a state of enjoyment. Therefore, right at outset, a great compassion. Again, a guide to the Bodhisattva's of life. Whatever your head is derived from the wishing for others. Whatever misery the world has is derived from wishing happiness for oneself. Look at the difference between these two. The childish act for their own welfare, the Buddha act for others' welfare. Do not be disheartened by this challenge, although you are frightened upon hearing someone's name. Now, due to the power of familiarity, you would miss the person when he is away. Sentient beings and the Buddhas are similar. From them you achieve a Buddha's quality. <coughs> Just as you respect the Buddha, Adisha said, Final <coughs> teaching should develop through effort or eon, the spirit of enlightenment, which is like the sun that clears away darkness and a moon that pours the torment of peace. So from what we read, it's very clear as to the benefit of Bodhisattva. Um, so anyway, uh, the, the plan that I have is first to explain orally about the benefit of Bodhisattva and then, every now and then, we relate the accounts of Buddha. Accounts of Buddha where he displayed explicitly and very um, obviously a sense of compassion, unconditioned compassion, overflowing compassion, particularly to the breath and uh, the destitute ones. And then, uh, after that, uh, the actual two techniques, to cultivate bodhicitta, the practical true techniques. And then, um, after that, then uh, say uh, what should one do in order to retain one's uh, bodhicitta that is generated uh, so that 
you don't forget it in this life and in the future lives. And then some practical suggestions, you know, how to make sure that the bodhicitta or the, the taste of this bodhicitta is always with us, you know, in everyday uh, practice. <coughs> um, again, this is what, this is usually what, you know, uh, the style of teaching of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and also uh, the very nature of the Buddha's teaching uh, that is, everything should be based on sound reasoning and sound, sensible logic, right? Logic doesn't mean, you know, all the complicated things which means something which is reasonable, something which really makes sense rather than following blindly, you know? Although, speaking about Bodhisattva, uh, speaking about Bodhisattva, it seems like, it sounds as though like it has nothing, to, nothing much to do with reason and these things. But in true sense, it's not a case. Every bit of the thing that you do, you know, how qualitative, how confident you are in that pursuit is going to be determined by, you know, how, how, uh, what sense of, what degree of conviction that you have in that. And the conviction is again determined uh, by the, the quality of the underlying reason on the basis of which you delve into that action. So, the underlying reason is really very important. If the reason is very clear, then the meditation that you do on Bodhisattva as well will be very clear and distinctive and um, to one's satisfaction of confidence and whereas if the underlying reason for meditating bodhicitta is vague, <coughs> the practice of bodhicitta as well will become vague. But I don't guarantee you that once you have all these sound reasonings, then the bodhicitta is not something that is coming to you automatically. We need practice. In fact, I don't know whether it's going to be good news or bad news, but the fact is that the meditation on bodhicitta and the meditation on emptiness, these two are very different. Meditation on emptiness, it demands lots of time, lots of time from you in terms of really getting there. As to what you know, just with you know, the, time, the amount of time that you spend for understanding what emptiness, it will really take a great, great deal of your energy, your time, you know and dedication. Once you understand it, it's almost like, you know, you get the emptiness. So, once you understand, you know, the, the logically you come to there, what emptiness is, then that's it. You only got the emptiness. But unlike emptiness, bodhisattva is very different. Say, if I'm to give you an elaborate you know, explanation of Bodhisattva, at the most it might take, you know, four or five days. At the most. Say, if I'm, you know, kind enough, it might take one week. <laughs> but, but, to really, you know, after understanding this, really bringing that, translating that into one's own experience, that is what consumes time. That's what demands time. So it takes, you know, time in actually translating what you've learned, what you've understood of bodhicitta into actual, the 
the real level of the experience, right? So, uh, what I'm going to say here is that, you know, uh, once you understand it as to the benefit of this, as to how to practice this, and then how to guarantee that the little experience of bodhicitta that you have, you know, or say little experience of compassion that you have derived from these uh, techniques, how to retain, you know, how to retain it in this life, in the next life, after knowing all these things, then we really need to dedicate a time in a very practical way, in action, we need to put, you know, what you've learned, translate that into real action. This is really very important. Um, in this relation, uh, I don't know if it is okay. Okay, let us put it this way. Mm. In fact, these two, the wisdom of emptiness and the bodhicitta, these two are like, you know, your, uh, your two good friends. Right? And yet, they can, they can, you know, help mutually benefit one another, mutually enhance one an another, but they have slightly different characteristics. Say, the wisdom of emptiness, as we discussed earlier, the, dis the distinctive nature of that in terms of experience. I don't mean to, again, you know, I don't mean to say that I have experience. No experience at all. So what I'm saying, you know, so I'm personifying my teachers. It's not like, you know, I'm my own teachers. It's not that I have the experience. So without, you know, saying in terms of how my teachers say, then I think, you know, the, this teaching is going to be least effective for me and for you. So to make sure that there is, you know, some effect coming out of that, I'm personifying my teacher, simply imitating, you know, uh, how they do. Okay, so as I said earlier, as, you know, last time during the uh, our discussion of emptiness, so we very clearly come to know that as you understand emptiness, then we come to know that this ignorance which, which is underlying all suffering is, you know, is the one who is to be blamed. And once you know that, how do, how do you know that? We know that by the reality that this ignorance is misconception. You know, we know the reality. Because of which we become so confident, we are able to, we dare to say no to ignorance, which is the underlying cause of all suffering, right? So there's a sense of daringness. There's a sense of confidence with this emptiness. You don't fear anyone. Fear, fear anyone in the sense, not fear law of karma, but we don't fear this ignorance. We don't fear samsara. Because we come to know the flaw of samsara. We come to know the flaw of this ignorance. You know, you become so confident. This is the emptiness. You know, so why? We, you know, we are so, we feel, you know, we really feel so sad, we really feel so upset, and then we really feel so, you know, uncomfortable with the sense of fear and these things. If you don't want fear in any, with respect to anything, simply cultivate this wisdom of emptiness. 
and it will give you confidence, right? It will simply overcome all forms of fears. Fear of death, the fear of someone accusing you, someone insulting you, the fear of, you know, um, you're having done some the, neg- the negativities. Say you have already done lots of negativities. And then you meditate on emptiness. Then it is really like a great consoler. It's really like a, you know, um, a very strong person who is right there to guard you from your enemies. So this is the emptiness part. And a bodhicitta, you know. So it's, it's as though like this, this experience of emptiness is so strong, you know, so strong and so confident and yet there's an element of, you know, reservation, you know, reservation in the sense, you know, Reser- reservation in the sense, uh, you find no, you leave no room for any flaw in you, you know, you're so confident. But then look, this bodhicitta, it has a slight different angle to it, it has a slight different taste to it. So the bodhicitta, on the other hand, you know, it's simply always smiles in cheering attitude. It always embraces everyone else. It finds no enemy. You know, say, if you are in a family, in a very cozy family, where everyone is so loving to one another, you know, you feel so relaxed. You feel so comfortable. So similarly, the entire world, entire universe, with this bodhisattva and you, you feel so comfortable at home. You embrace everyone, including the tiny insects, including your enemy. Mm-hmm. Everyone. In fact, there is no enemy because you embrace everyone. So this is the bodhisattva. And when you have this, then the kind of joy that you have is very different. It far excels any mundane joy. Let me uh, let me uh, relate something, narrate something from what Ari Chandrakirti said in his entry into the Middle Way. He said he compared the kind of joy that someone, you know, a Bodhisattva feels when he or he, she hears a cry from outside. Oh, please, give me an arm. You know, crying for something, crying for food or something. And then the Bodhisattva, you know, would feel a great, deep, profound sense of joy over hearing that. Knowing that, look, now I get the opportunity to help, you know, one of my family members. You know, he has come there, right in front of my door. What a joy that I got opportunity. You know, there is tremendous joy surging in him or her, on the one hand. And on the other hand, say we have a Shravaka, Arahat, someone who is already liberated, you know, who is already liberated from samsara, and who has already realized the emptiness non-dualistically, directly. And he's in this state of meditative equipoise on emptiness and experiencing a profound bliss of meditation. And then Adi Chandrakiti compared the two. 
and said that however great, however profound the experience of you know, meditative bliss that you may experience, you know, for a Shirvaka Arahat, meditating on emptiness, but that, but that when compared to the Bodhisattva, simply feeling a joy out of hearing someone asking for your help, you know, the Shirvaka's joy is so insignificant. Now look, imagine, imagine, say you are in a very profound experience of non-dualistic experience of emptiness. And not just that experience, but you have, because of which you have abandoned all afflictions. You are already freed from samsara. You are experiencing something which you have never experienced before. And yet, you know, it's considered so insignificant when you compare that with the Bodhisattva. Tiniest of the joy, overhearing the mere hearing of a cry from someone else asking for help, right? So, from this, we see that, you know, oh, in fact, what I'm seeking for, what I'm seeking in this life, and, you know, in the, in the, form, in the, the later life, is all nothing but happiness. And the happiness, you know, at least out of what Ari Chantakriti said, if you can generate out of Bodhicitta, that far excels any other happiness, any other joy. So, you know, it would be only, only if you are insane, you know, only if you are insane, you are not going to, you know, uh, embrace such a joy. Otherwise, everyone, with no doubt, without any hesitation, will go for that. You know, the only thing is that we have not discovered it. Right? Because of a selfish interest, selfishness. So what I'm, like to say here is that the wisdom of emptiness gives you a sense of serenity, a sense of peace, sense of confidence. And this bodhicitta gives you a sense of embracing, overflowing joy. So we need both. Overflowing joy and the sense of peace, ultimate peace, you know. <clears throat> so if you work if you have these to combine together, then what is the benefit? You know, so we see, because of your understanding of emptiness, because of this tremendous peace and confidence, you will not be tainted by any other falls of samsara. And because of this bodhicitta, you embrace everyone and the joy simply multiplies to millions. You know, so there's a tremendous joy, tremendous happiness. And yet at the same time, there's a tremendous confidence and peace. So this is the beauty of these two teachings and <clears throat> uh, the very purpose of the Buddha appearing on this earth is simply to share his experience of this to, to all sentient beings. Right? Okay. <clears throat> and, um, and then in terms of, you know, in terms of um, in terms of the joy again, in terms of the joy, we have to experiment it. You know, Arya Chandrakirti very, uh, very clearly stated, stated there, and also in the benefits of, you know, the, the stanzas, which explain the benefit of uh, generating bodhicitta, also, you know, uh, talk highly of generating this bodhicitta. So we need to experiment it. You know, in our lives, in this very life, we have experienced all ups and downs. And 
you know, among which there were instances, moments where we felt so happy, right? Now, this is the kind of happiness of the mundane level. Now, what you do is that after practicing after learning about the bodhicitta, you try to implement, you know, this practice, and then say, say, you know. Uh, Say you are given a choice, or oh, it's so cold outside, it's minus something, and there must be someone standing outside there, you know, and say there's someone else who is already standing there, almost freezing to death, and then you are out. Oh, you want to spare the other person and you want to go there? This is an extreme example. I don't think you will you know, encounter with such instances. But still, with that, then you can extrapolate to other examples as well, other um, the instances. Then, say, oh, let me try for one minute. Just go there and spare the person for one minute. You go there for one minute. And then look, out of, you know, out of reluctance, if you go there, then there's a tremendous pain in you. But out of concern with this person, you go there, even for just one minute, you come back and you feel joy. And this joy is something so untainted. It's something so untainted that you have never experienced in this whole life. This joy. A joy out of concern for others. Genuine concern for others. Not because the other one is your mother. Not because the other one is your father. Not because the other one is your you know, partner or whatever. But the other one is someone who deserves your affection, who is someone who has a feeling of pain, who has a feeling of happiness. You know, just another human being, another sentient being. Just for this reason, you go there and help. And the joy that you experience is something inexpressible. Unless and until you experience that, you're not going to know. It might simply remain on the intellectual, you know, thing. So, you must try that. We must try that. And then, let us experience it. In fact, why I'm saying this is because I have a very strange experience. It's not so profound, but very small. Still, even now, I respect that very small boy. When I would say about eight years old, eight years old, I had just about how many uh, Indian 50 pies. 50 pies means it's equal to some, what, uh, one cent USA, you know, when I was a kid. And then we were taken to the main temple, which was quite far away from us. And I simply you know, changed that into even smaller, you know, uh, coins. And then on the way, there were all many beggars on the way. And then, being a small kid, I had nothing to give. That was just what I had in my hand. So, you know, it can be, can be broken down into uh, ten smaller pieces. So I gave, you know, distributed that to at least to ten beggars. And then, there in the market, I didn't have anything to eat. Because what I had was already given. And then upon return, 
as a small boy, there's a deep sense of joy coming in me. And that joy was something inexpressible. Something so profound. And very expensive. And as though like, you know, uh, lasting for a very long period. You know, not my, not, uh, uh, it is not that, you know, I need to prolong it. It simply re- remains, you know, remained on its own. Very profound and expensive at the same time. It's not like a very confined thing. I was so startled. And then later on, when I studied about this Bodhicitta, and then when I studied about chanting this day, then I, you know, I got a clue, a look, the joy that you derived from letting others happen is something so transcendental. It is beyond what we experience in ordinary life. So, you know, this is what I experienced when I was just a small kid. And even now I revere that small kid. You know, although in terms of knowledge, you know, the, the small kid and my, myself now, you know, not to be compared, but still I revere him so much. A great thing. He has experienced this, you know, also so feebly, but still he experienced that. And yet this, you know, one who has learned, learned a lot has, is not experiencing. You know, so therefore I revere this so much. Okay, so let's all give a test, give a try to this, and then see if you come to know that the taste of chocolate is very different from the taste of ordinary candy. Then every time, next time, you will not ask for the, the ordinary candy. You ask for chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> so similarly, if you really taste the, you know, uh, taste the, the wonder of this bodhicitta, the joy, the wondrous joy of bodhicitta, then in future, you will no, not look for the joy of the samsaric, you know, samsaric thing. You will ask for the joy of the bodhicitta. Ask whom? Ask yourself. Engage in bodhicitta. You know, because this joy that you get out of it, it is chocolate taste. Right? Okay, so, uh, this is really a very beautiful mind. It's incredibly beautiful mind. Incredibly beautiful mind. Yeah. So, just a tinge of it within you can bring you into tears. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And it embraces everyone. It leaves no one unattended. It will embrace everyone, you know, particularly the destitute and the poor ones. It's amazing. This is what the Buddhas do. This is what the Bodhisattvas do. This is not what the great persons of this earth do. You know, what the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas do. So, when you feel really low-spirited, sad, desperate, we should not think that we are being abandoned. They are the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who always take care of us. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. And then look, in this other compendium of the Teaching Sutra, it's so beautifully summarized. Bhagavan Bodhisattvas should not learn many teachings. Bhagavan, if Bodhisattvas grasp and know one teaching, they will have all the Buddha's teachings in the palm of their hand. What is this one teaching? It is great compassion. Look. Simply cultivate compassion, and then all other teachings, all other practices will simply ensue. This is the beauty of this teaching. 
And at the same time, you know, you will simply delve in these, these practices out of joy, without someone imposing upon you, without yourself imposing upon it. Because we find so difficult practicing the Dharma, simply because, simply because, you know, you see that mentally you are reluctant, and you are imposing upon yourself. Someone else is imposing upon yourself. Your environment is imposing upon yourself. And it makes, you know, there's a clash between your natural thinking, which is reluctant, and the, you know, environmental pressure that you should do it. So there's a clash, and you feel so desperate to unhappy. Now look, let compassion grow in you. Once compassion grows in you, then there's an inner push within you. You know, no, you need no one else to tell you to do it. You don't need yourself to tell to do it. And there's a natural flow of your practice out of great joy. Right? So in fact, let me narrate to you in this connection. I think this is quite relevant here. What happened was that once, in India, there was in India, there was one uh, a community and where, uh, say, five days of, uh, five days of holidays, very, uh, some uh, word, uh, important part of the uh, ceremony or something like that, five days holidays. And then, some of the people there, they started uh, playing a word, they started gambling, you know. I don't know what that particular gambling is called, gambling. And then say, if you are to meditate for a while, just within five, ten minutes, you'll start dozing off, or you know, some haziness coming in your mind, these things. Really difficult to go ahead. And look, so that person, when involved in this gambling, he forgot, you know, taking food. He forgot taking, you know, drink. He forgot all sleep, you know, gambled whole day 12 hours, the whole night 24 hours, you know, the next whole day 12 hours, the next whole 24 hours, say 48 hours, still no sleep, so active, you know, no one has to tell him, oh, go on doing it, go on doing it, you know, there's a natural drive, you know, natural drive, why? And then, it was, it's time for, you know, the uh, kitchen duty. And he had to go there. And he started, you know, cooking the food and dozing off. <laughs> because 24 hours, 48 hours, so active, you know, mostly. And dozing off. And then, the chief chef asked him, Oh, no, you know, you're dozing off, you're tired. So why, in, in order to keep him awake, you know, he was given another job to go here and there to, you know, bring something. And on the way, he would, you know, doze off on the way while walking, you know. And then the, the chef said, oh, look, so better you go to bed and uh, one or two hours sleep. Then, okay, thank you. And he went there. And immediately, you know, his mind, again to the gambling. He went there, again, no sleep. So active. Why? Tell me why. Because of his joy. You know, the greater the joy, you know, the more would be your, your natural flow of the effort. You don't need any rule. Any rules. You don't need anyone else telling you. Simply there's a natural drive in, in it. So natural. 
You know, you can even keep your body so active, you know. Usually we say, oh, eight only eight hours job, eight hours sleep, you know. But this is not true in this case. When you have a natural windows and deep sense of joy in it, then you're engaging into the action. It's so natural. And there's a natural drive in it. You know, there's a deep joy in it. So likewise, once you practice compassion, then feeling joy over, you know, doing well, uh, doing uh, the the welfare, working for the welfare of other sentient beings is so natural, you know, and doing just for oneself is for one person, and doing you know, things for all sentient beings is so numerous, and because of which the joy simply multiplies, and there's a tremendous joy, and you you know, delving into all virtuous actions, they become so automatic. So because of which all other teachings simply come to you, you know, without yourself going out to them. So simply have this teaching of the compassion, one teaching in your hand, all other teachings of the Buddha will simply fall on your, on your palm. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, they are, you know, so likewise, and then I will do this one, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Uh, the first stanza, and then we will do the, the main, uh, the techniques. Um, page one, the last stanza. It is like the supreme gold-making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body we have taken into the priceless jewel of the Buddha form, therefore firmly sees this awakening mind. And for information, this bodhicitta is translated in all different English words. Some people translate it as the spirit of enlightenment, Others translate it as awakening mind. Some people translate it as altruistic intention to become enlightened. You know, so there are all different um, the interpretations, translations. So they all mean the same thing, bodhicitta, right? Okay. So first, again, um, the reason why I've been, you know, telling you all the benefits first is because, like this person. You know, finding joy in gambling. Likewise, if you find, you know, uh, if we know the benefits of this, then there's a deep sense of admiration coming in you, in Bodhicitta. And then your mind simply opens and you become receptive to what this Bodhicitta has to tell you. Right? So, and once you become so receptive, then what you can receive, what takes you two hours or four hours to receive something, on this topic can be received just in one hour. This is a benefit, right? So this is why I've been doing this. And also, you know, if you feel admiration in this bodhicitta, then naturally you accumulate enormous merit, enormous merit, right? Enormous merit. So once you have the merit, say what will happen? If you are poor, you know, so even if you want to go to Spokane, Oh, you have to hitchhike, right? So whereas, if you have, if you are billionaire or millionaire, whatever, then you can simply give a call, and your car is right there, two or three, four cars, right? <laughs> Similarly, if you have if you if you have enormous merit, enormous merit accumulated, then what happens is that everything becomes so easy for you. Your practice is no obstacle. 
you know, and then say everything, whether it is mundane benefits or whether it is super mundane benefits, everything will simply happen so naturally. So, you know, these are all the results of marriage. And the, the best way of accumulating marriage is by, you know, generating bodhicitta, generating compassion, and generating admiration in bodhicitta and compassion. Right? So this is the purpose. Okay, now let's read the last stanza of page 1. It is like the supreme gold making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body when we have taken into the process jewel of a Buddha form. Therefore, firmly sees this awakening mind. You have it? Uh, yeah. So, uh, look, we all, just think of yourself. We all want happiness, we don't want suffering. And we don't want someone else to disparage you. You want to be respected. Right? And you want to be happy. And what percent of happiness is possible? 100%. Right? So the greatest happiness, lasting happiness. Now look, how can you achieve that? In this stanza, just one stanza, everything is set there. It is like the supreme gold making elixir, for it transforms the, un- transforms the unclean body we have taken. Say, there's just this, this watch. Say, it costs, say, like four, $4. I think how many dollars? Oh, a little bit more than four. Ten. Twenty. Maybe for the twenty, between ten and twenty dollars, you know? Say, this is just an ordinary metal. What you do is that you bring a gold, you know, a elixir, which has the capacity to transform ordinary metals into the gold. And then, then you, you know, you put that in this solution, elixir, and then you put it there, it becomes gold, right? So then, would you be selling this for again $20? No, not at all. It's a gold watch. It's going to be very likely millions of dollars. Nobody made it like that, you know, with everything gold. So, just this $20 worth object, because of some very small technique, you transform that into millions of dollars worth object. So precious. Once you make it a gold, then I would even dare to put it outside. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't even show it to anyone. <laughs> it's so precious. Likewise, in a similar way, look, with this body, you know, it's so horrible. It is just prone to all kinds of sicknesses. You know, it's prone to sickness, aging, and death. And this mind of us is so basic, it's so defiled. You know? And yet, this body can be made into the, the body of the Buddha. This mind can be made into the mind of the Buddha simply by one small trick. What is that? Cultivate Bodhisattva. And this Bodhisattva will transform your body into the divine body of the Buddha. Transform your mind into the divine mind of the Buddha. Omniscient, all-powerful, all-embracing. No stain of suffering. No stain of fault. Perfect from all respect. And who made it? It's the Bodhisattva. So, 
You want to have the body, the blazing with the body with the blazing light as a the Buddha or not? Yes, it's possible. And what about mind? You want to know everything, physics, chemistry, mathematics, quantum theory, and about everything? Or you want to remain as what we are now? Or no, if possible, I want to become smarter than Albert Einstein. If possible. Is it possible? Yes. What to do? Send a small trick. Call it Bodhicitta. Right? So once there's the path, why do they embrace it? The only thing is that since beginning this time until now, we are so unfortunate to not to have encountered with this marvelous small technique. Now we have found it because of the kindness of Buddha Shakyamuni, because of the kindness of you know the great masters, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We're able to find you know able to find it. Now our job is to embrace it, cherish it. If you ever have that elixir which transforms all ordinary metals into gold, what do you do with that? Do you want to throw it away? No. Or you want to you know simply give it give it somewhere? Unattended? No. You'll treasure it. Cherish it. So likewise, this Bodhicitta is the one which is to be cherished. So now look, let me read it again. Um, it is like the supreme gold-making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body we have, we have taken into the priceless jewel of a Buddha form. Therefore, firmly seize this awakening mind. Right? So it's just a matter of, you know, whether or not you know this small trick. Say, say like 400 years ago, 500 years ago, in order to take just a, you know, uh, just a tunnel, how many, you know, how, how much time does it require? And how many people's labor does it require? But look, it's just magic. Just three persons, you know, dug a whole tunnel, you know, in just few, one or two days. Amazing. But in 400 years back, if the same were to be done, you know, would take months and months, and would take hundreds of people. But what? Now we have found this small trick, this tractor. <laughs> now we should, you know, likewise, so far we have been in this primitive time of not having found that tractor, you know, and because of which we remain so primitive, you know, so basic, so insignificant. One, now look, we have found the tractor. Tractor, we must use it. This bodhicitta, we must use it. We must use it. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and in, uh, in fact, look, the students of uh, uh, the the most prominent student of Atisha, the great Atisha, who visited Tibet in 11th century. And his student, believed to be the emanation of Avrutishvara, Tomtemba. His name is Tomtemba. And in fact, uh, um, the great Atisha, when he was in India, when he was being invited to Tibet, you know, uh, while he was in India, then he was trying to, and he had, look, he had a, 
he used to have a direct communion with Aritara, Atisha, you know. So for any kind of uh, advice, he would simply go for, you know, go to Aritara and seek her advice. And then um, he asked Aritara whether it is beneficial for him to go to Tibet or not. And then Aritara said, Oh, look, if you go to Tibet, surely, you know, there are some, you know, uh, difficulties, but there's, a, there's going to be great benefit to the flourishing Buddha Dhamma there. And on top of that, there's going to be one student of, you know, you, who had been karmically connected with you over the many powerful times, Dhamma. And then, you know, this Dhamma, of course, you know, he was highly learned, experienced meditator and these things. And then, soon after he came to hear about Atisha's, you know, coming to Tibet, he was so excited and chasing after uh, the, his master. And then, he himself had lots of students in his, you know, native place. And then after Atisha uh, coming there, he started joining with Atisha all the time, 24 hours. And then he would receive visitors from his native place and he would ask. Every time he would ask about, you know, uh, his native place, the people over there, his students, and then he would ask, oh, what is this, my student A doing? You know, and then the visitor would say, oh, nowadays he's really so keen and enthusiastic in the, the Dharma, he's meditating a lot, almost like, you know, almost hardly he sleeps, he simply meditates, and then, Tumtumba, he would reply, oh, good, 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 and then what about my student B doing? And then he would say, oh, nowadays he is so en- engrossed in purifying himself, purifying the negativities by m- making prostrations all the time, making mental recitation all the time, these things. And again he said, oh, good, good, good. And what is my student C doing? And then again the visitor said, oh, he is now really involved in proliferating the Buddha Dharma, spreading the Buddha Dharma by teaching, you know, extensively. And then, oh, good, good, good. And then, wh- what he's doing? And he said, no, we don't know what he's doing. He's simply walking in the forest, walking from this place to the other. He's simply rest there and cry. And again, walk back. Again, he would cry, not talking to anyone. And then, when this is what was narrated to him, then this, you know, Tomtemba, he folded his hands. That was his student. And yet he folded his hand. And he himself said tears. Said that, look, this is a person who is doing the most amazing thing in this world. The greatest of the Dharma. So what actually he is implying is that that student, he was simply meditating on Bodhicitta all the time. You know, because of reflecting on Bodhicitta, you know, then thinking about the suffering nature of sentient beings, he couldn't control his eye, tears, you know. And again coming back, Think about Bodhisattva, again tears coming, you know. So, this is what Dhamma could easily, you know, make out from the narration. And then he himself folded his palms. So now look, Dhamma, he is, you know, in terms of knowledge, I don't think there's anyone who can compare with him. And yet look, you know, what kind of action he really, you know, appreciates of all these different virtuous actions. He appreciates the one who meditates on Bodhisattva the most. Mm-hmm. So, 
from this again, we clearly see that the practice of bodhicitta is what encompasses all other practices. Right? Okay. <clears throat> now, this bodhicitta, um, is, so we see that, oh, this is something, really something, really something, which is really unheard of, you know? The benefit, also unheard of. And the, the thought is incredible, it's so profound, and yet all-embracing. There's a sense of joy, very expansive joy, you know. But this seems to be so alien to me since beginning of this time. But now look how fortunate I am. But how to cultivate this? But what is the, the, the full import? What is the full definition? You know, what does it really mean? It's such a beautiful mind, no doubt. But what is the real meaning of it? Okay, the, defin- the definition of bodhicitta. The definition of bodhicitta is... is an altruistic intention. An altruistic intention to become Buddha yourself an altruistic intention to become Buddha yourself for the benefit of all other sentient beings. An altruistic intention to become Buddha yourself in order to benefit all other sentient beings. I'm going to, here, I'm going to briefly explain, first of all, briefly explain about, you know, the two techniques, how to cultivate that. And then, before actually delving into the two techniques, I'd like to make a distinction between the self-grasping mind and the self-charging mind. You know, so these two, uh, without being able to tease these two apart, then our meditation, you know, turns out to be so vague and hazy. You know, we really need to tease about these two. Okay, uh, look, the bodhicitta, defined as the altruistic, altruism here, you know, altruism, means connoting you wanting to take the responsibilities of others. You know, altruism. Altruistic intention to become Buddha yourself. Why should you become Buddha? Again, look, say, this is, you know, quite an issue. And say, uh, just tell me your, you know, um, uh, tell me your own feeling. Tell me your own feelings as to which is more sensible and which is more, you know, uh, altruistic. Say, there's a peace breath. And we're all, you know, about to die. And there's a piece of bread. And you want to eat it, or you want to distribute to each one of us, say, a small, small piece. What does it do? Just say, small pieces to everybody. Raise your hands. Okay, I'll eat everyone. I'll eat everything. Raise your hands. (laughs) Okay, good. Say, there's a father 
and five small kids. Five small kids. And they are in the, the middle of the, you know, desert. And there's only one bread. And, you know, if everyone, all the small kids, they say that, I want to have it, I want to have it. And the father doesn't say anything. And yet, there's another person, you know, very sensible person. What would his advice be? Whether the father should eat whole bread, you know, or they'd be divided into, the, into five and give it to the five kids. Then if it is the sensible person, his advice would be, it is your, it is your responsibility. Don't, you know, don't think that you're kind giving this to the kids. You should eat them. You must eat them. You don't like to eat it. You love your kids so much. But it is your responsibility. This is not because you want it. You have to do it. You eat them. You eat them. And go and look for more food. Because if you divide it and give it to the small kids, they'll simply die. You all will die here. You eat it, although you don't like to eat it. You, you feel happier seeing your kids eating it. And you have to eat it. Because you love your kids. You don't want to let your kids die. You know, your eating is not for your goodness, but for the goodness of kids. Eat it and go out, fetch more food, come here and let your kids survive. You know, so this, is, so this means that, which is wiser, the father eating the food, everything, or dividing it among kids, father eating, eating the food. You know, so likewise, Bodhisattvas. Likewise, you know, someone who's, who really wants to help all these small kids, your kids, you know, how to do the best thing, is first of all, you should be strong enough. You should be strong enough, you know, to, to be endowed with everything by which you can help all these sentient beings. So who is the one who is endowed with everything? It is the Buddha. So you should become a Buddha first. You know, it's not that, you know, you're going to enjoy the first. It's not for your enjoyment, but for the enjoyment of other sentient beings. So, the altruistic intention to become Buddha yourself, for what? For, to, for the sake of all sentient beings. Right? That's it. Okay, and as for the two techniques, so, very likely most of you already know, but still here and there, I'm going to, you know, explain it in relation to, in relation to some accounts of the Buddha, some accounts of the great masters, you know, and from His Holiness, my teachers. Uh, the two techniques <clears throat> are the sevenfold cause-effect relationship to cultivate bodhicitta, the sevenfold cause-effect relationship to cultivate bodhicitta. And the second technique is the technique of equalizing and exchanging oneself for others. The technique of equalizing and exchanging oneself for others to cultivate bodhicitta. Okay. Now, the next part, before, you know, as I promised earlier, before I delve into these two techniques detail, in detail, I first like to make, you know, uh, the distinction or teeth part between the self, self-grasping and self-cherishing mind. Look, as for our lasting goodness, lasting happiness, 
they are two kinds Buddhahood and personal liberation a Buddhahood and a personal liberation you know yourself, simply yourself uh, getting free from samsara, that's it whereas Buddhahood where you are endowed with the capacity, ability to benefit all other sentient beings instant, instantly right? so look, there are two goals the two lasting or the, you know, a definite goodness or definite uh, goals Buddhahood and personal liberation which is better and which is inferior? no doubt, Buddhahood so we heard about all the benefits of Bodhicitta, you know so we'll simply jump to this Buddhahood, of course so since as the goal as, uh, you know, the greater goal the obstacle is greater Inferior the goal, inferior is the obstacle. So, what is the obstacle to you know achieving Buddhahood, and what is the obstacle to achieving personal liberation? We see that in technical terms, in technical terms, the obscuration to cognition or the you know cognitive obscuration, it is what hinders, is what hinders us from achieving Buddhahood. And afflictive obscuration, afflictive obscuration is what hinders us from achieving personal liberation, right? Okay, cognitive obscuration and the uh, the afflictive obscuration. The cognitive obscuration, or sometimes translated as the obscuration to omniscience, so we can put it anyway. But it is better for you to have both. Yeah. Now look, so this is what I put in a very technical, in a very technical term. Now, the same thing, let me explain in a more, you know, a comprehensive, more understandable term. As for the cognitive, I would say, you know, um, in other words, I don't want to equate the two, but still, I would say that, in other words, I can say, it is the self-cherishing mind which obstructs you from achieving Buddhahood. It is the self-cherishing mind which obstructs you from achieving Buddhahood. And I'm not bold enough to say that the self-cherishing mind and the cognitive obscuration are equivalent. I don't want to say this for time being. Right? Simply put it in two different ways. Right? The technical way and in a more, you know, conversational way, where the self-cherished mind is the obscuration to achieving Buddhahood, and the self-grasping mind is the obscuration to achieving personal liberation. Self-grasping mind is what what obscures you from achieving uh, personal liberation, and self-cherished mind is what obscures you from achieving Buddhahood. Clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so far I talked a lot, and now I do, you know, I will let you talk more. Okay, with my questions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, say, first of all, just in your own words, you know, in your own level of thinking or level of feeling, just share with me, just you know, share with all of us here. 
Uh, what is the difference between self-grasping mind and self-cherishing mind? Of course, of course, it is my job to do it. But for the time being, you know, I will uh, leave it unto you to explain it. What is the difference between self-grasping mind and self-cherishing mind? You know, be confident. We have come here to learn. Even I came here to learn. Every one of us come here to learn. Which means we are not perfect. Which means we are bound to make mistakes. So don't worry about the mistakes. Simply speak what you know. What is the difference between self-grasping mind and self-cherishing mind? The self-grasping mind says, I am here. And the self-cherishing mind says, and I am the center of the universe. I see. So, when you say, I'm here, is it wrong or is it right? Is it right? What do you mean by yes? I don't know. <laughs> to which of the two questions you answered, I don't know. Oh, say that, say that if I'm here, it's wrong? You're wrong. You're not oh, here? No, that's right, that's right. That's right. So this, means, this is not self-grasping mind. Oh. Self-grasping mind should necessarily be negative. Should necessarily be wrong mind. Mm-hmm. What you said, I'm here, is right. So how can it be self-grasping mind? Anyone? What does it mean to self-grasping mind? Yes? I think of it as, like, uh, there's a really, like, inherently existing Karen. That's the essence of Karen-ness. Here I am. <laughs> like, I see. That, that's, like, a real, uh, okay, okay. real... It's a very solid, yeah, tangible yeah. Karen here. That's right. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Dallas? I was going to say the same thing. Same. Saying that or seeing something as truly existent out there and solid. And then when I think it's solid, then I want it or I'm going to run from it. I see. So do you run from you or do you want it? Mm-hmm. It's dirt. <laughs> sometimes you run away. Has it ever come across a time where you run away from yourself? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Self-grasping mind, so what Karen, just, what Karen and uh, Dallas described is quite right and what, you know, um, Venerable Chunyala answered is implicitly right. Implicitly. So underlined there, I'm here, so wanting to really point to something so pointable, you know, something so pointable, objective, independent, tangible self. So this is what is known as self-grasping mind. Next, self-cherishing mind. Uh, I'm the most important. I'm the most important. How many, how many agree? How many disagree? Self-cherishing mind is the mind which thinks that, you know, the, that object, the self, is the most important person in this world. So, no, this is not my definition. This is what, you know. So, how, how many of you agree? How many of us agree? I see most. And is this wrong or right? This, is this a mistaken mind or unmistaken mind? <laughs> I see. Self-cherishing mind. Do you think that self-cherishing mind should be a mistaken mind? Mistaken mind? Yeah. Just raise your hands, those who say that self-cherishing mind should be a mistaken mind. I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> what about Venerable Luther? In between. Yeah. Oh, it good. Be, Two of us. <laughs> you? It should be, but I, I don't believe it. I have a 
Is this a mistaken or is this and the most important is this mistaken or not? No, no, so there are two ways of thinking. So, my question is not I'm the most important person on this earth. I, this is not my question. Is this mistaken or not? This is not my question. My question is self-cherishing mind. Is it, is, should it be mistaken or not? This is my question. Is it, is it mistaken? Yes. Okay. So Arahat, they understand emptiness directly. Do you think, you know, do you think that they have this feeling? They do have self-cherishing mind, I agree with you, but my question is, the self-cherishing mind as defined by when our most, you know, Prasangika, <laughs> as, you know, feeling oneself as the most important one deserve. Is this what you think? Is present. Is is this what you think that the the you know the arahants think? No. Do you think the arahants think that I'm the most important person on this earth? No, they have no self-grasping. Uh, no, they have, they don't have self-grasping mind, but they have self-cherishing mind. Yes, no. Arahants, do they have self-cherishing mind or not? They must. They must, because they focus on themselves completely in order to get where they are. Well, okay, just raise your hands, those who said they have such cherish mind. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Uh, so. So I thought that the self-cherishing mind is a result of the self-grasping mind. So once the self-grasping mind is eliminated, I would assume that the self-cherishing would also come. So this means that the arahas, they don't have self-cherishing mind, according to you? But by a definition of the affliction, the obscuration to omniscience, they definitely have self-cherishing mind. Good, that uh-huh. is what you're putting. So this is according to, you know, if this is so, yeah. if what I said is correct, then this follows. Okay, uh, look, look, you know, now this is the, uh, the point where we try to explore into, you know, so there's a discrepancy coming, right? Now let's explore. Let's see, Arhat, you know, uh, they, are already, they are given the choice. Oh, you want to achieve liberation? Or you want to, you know, liberate all sentient beings? They, what do what do they say? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm really concerned about others. I'm really concerned about others. But you know, oh, I, you know, so this feeling, I, is something so alive in myself. Whereas the feeling of the others is not so alive. The pain that I have is what I'm experiencing. I can bear it. But whereas the pains in others, you know. It doesn't really affect me, you know. I don't mean to say that I'm the most important, because if I say I'm most important, then our Prasangaga will also say that I'm the most important. Then both of us should be right. And, you know, from if she's right, I'm wrong. If I'm right, because I said that I'm, most, I'm the most important, I'm more important than her. And she said she's, a, she's more important than me. If she's right, I'm wrong. If I'm wrong. If I'm right, she's wrong, you know. So the best thing would be to say both are wrong, you know. Because both can be right at some time. So both are wrong, right? So this means that, what I mean to say, is that the arahats, 
they won't say that I'm more important than others. Because they know this logic. You know? They won't say that I'm, most, I'm the most important person on this earth. But look. But look. There's one thing. Say, you know, when somebody hits you, is it painful? Yes. But when somebody hits someone else, does it pain you? So mentally you feel uncomfortable. But physically you, you don't feel. You feel the pain. Right? So whereas if the pain is so unbearable, I don't want to give examples. You know, I, can, I, have, I have examples. You know, the mere thought of it really would make you shiver. But say, some very excruciatingly painful you know, experience. Unbearable. What happens? You'll cry. You'll cry aloud. Right? Whereas if someone else, if the same pain is there in someone else, Mentally, you feel so sad, you know, so wanting to do something, but physically, you don't feel hurt. But there's no unbearableness on the physical level. So, the Arab, for them, you know, it is on this level of experience. They could feel the experience of their own pain, and not, you know, in the living experience, they feel the experience, they feel the pain of others. But Bodhisattvas, you know, they see someone else physical pain, it is double, triple the times of pain in him. You know? So say, seeing the pain in him and seeing the pain in others, for him, seeing the pain in others is more painful to him than his own pain. So this is the level of their thought. So because of which, you know, uh, when you are in this level of the arahat, where you know you have the sympathy and empathy towards others, you know, quite, but you don't really feel the pain of others on your body. So at that point, when there's a, when there's unbearable pain on you, you simply you cannot really control yourself, you know, trying to do away with that. And then they think of the samsaric pain. It is million, you know, millions more, you know, times more painful than the physical, someone else cutting your body. So then they become so unbearable, and then they seek the you know, personal liberation. So this is associated with self-cherishing mind. I don't define it still. Still, it contains the self-cherishing mind there. And whereas for the Bodhisattvas, we say they don't have, you know, although the inklings of self-cherishing mind comes when you are in the beginning level of Bodhisattvas, but when you're very advanced, you have no, no trace of self-cherishing mind. The indication, as I said earlier, is that, you know, you have unbearable physical pain here, and you, the same, you see the same over others, then you forgot your pain. This is what the Bodhisattvas, you know, mentality, mental advancement. So they have no self-cherishing mind. So now look, so from this difference, can you make, you know, Although you, can, you may not be able to articulate, but still can you make a kind of uh, slight difference between the two, the self-cherishing and self-centeredness? So say, look, again, you know, with the issue of whether or not self-cherishing mind is mistaken or unmistaken, say, you are, you, are, uh, you are a shirvaka, you know, someone seeking personal liberation. And then someone cu- comes to cut your body into pieces, you know, all of this starts. Already started to you know cut your body in pieces. So what's the kind of pain 
unbearable, right? So would you be able to be still say, oh, please cut more? Or will you say, oh, please stop, 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 stop. And if you get the chance, you can even smash other person, <laughs> right? So you will do something. So this wish, this wish to you know, stop yourself from this pain, is this mistaken mind or unmistaken? Don't take it philosophically, think of in you know realistic way. Is this mistaken or it is your basic right? It's your right. It's basic right, which means it's unmistaken. And yet, this doesn't happen to the Bodhisattvas. So this is tainted with the self-cherishing mind, which, you, which we call as the basic right to say no. This is self-cherishing mind, you know, the mind to protect yourself, the mind to protect yourself, you know, the mind to cherish yourself by being oblivious to the to the the plight of others, by being oblivious. This word oblivious, I don't say you know these concerns. This is not my word. Being oblivious, meaning you know. Oblivious meaning that you have pain here and someone else has the pain there or over there. And then your pain becomes so alive in you. And the other's pain is not alive in you. You know? So it's not because that he's deliberately thinking that I'm more important. This is a natural state. You know? So you're being oblivious to others applied or the pains. And your pain becomes so alive, unbearable, and then you still want to eliminate that. This is self charged mind. So self-cherished mind is not mistaken, and yet it is simply narrow-minded thinking. Narrow-minded, simply confined to yourself. A valid mind, but simply confined to yourself, are narrow-minded. Say, oh, I'm hungry. You know, say we're all hungry, right? If I complain, oh, I'm hungry. Is this? Is am I telling the truth or I'm telling a lie? This is true. When I say, you know, when I thought I'm hungry, is it a mistaken mind or unmistaken mind? Unmistaken mind. This is so narrow thinking. It is unmistaken yet very narrow thinking. I'm hungry. Why don't I say, you know, we're all hungry? The Bodhisattva say we're all hungry, and the Shravaka says say, I'm hungry. Both are right, but one is very narrow in scope, and the other is, you know, all expand, you know, embracing everyone. So look, this is the difference. There's no difference in terms of whether mistaken or unmistaken. Both are right. Self-cherishing mind and other cherishing mind, both are, you know, equally unmistaken minds. But one is very narrow in thinking, and the other one is expansive, universal. Right? Yes, Prasangika. Oh, question. Yes, yes. It's really the same question that Noble Sankey yeah. raised. Is, that, is this... Hmm. How do I ask this? The arhat is um, has defeated the sense of self self grasping of self grasping. Yes. So how does this self cherishing arise? I'm confused. Good. Don't say confused. I have a dilemma. I have a dilemma. <laughs> because you know, confused means there's haziness in you. Actually, it's not. It's a kind of paradox. You're seeing, yeah. you know, instead of your conf- uh, get, instead of the haziness, you know, the cloudy thing, but you see a kind of dilemma, kind of paradox here. Yeah. On the one hand, the uh, very good thing, it is 
you know, a test for all of us, not just for me, all of us. So Arahat, on the one hand, we say, you know, he has abandoned what? He or she has abandoned self-grasping mind. Because self-grasping mind is the root of suffering, root of samsara. So without eliminating that, how can you achieve liberation? So self-grasping mind is eliminated by their self-cherishing mind. So the question is, how can self-cherishing mind still exist when the self-grasping mind is eliminated? Now, is there anyone who is courageous enough to speak for me? Same. Sorry? The same of the self-grasping mind remains. No, same of the self-grasping. The same things left over from the sense. The sense of self-grasping from the eyes and the eyes still remain after this. The self-grasping itself is removed. Now, speak again, we all know. We all know that I'm a very slow learner. You all have to help me. I don't understand all these philosophical things. I understand only what is, you know, so relevant to one's experience, you know. So from my experience, I know that when I say I'm hungry, you know, I'm self-centered. When I say we are hungry, I'm embracing others. This is what I know. And then, you know, when this self-grasping mind is eliminated, the question is, how can this still exist this, you know, or oh, I'm hungry. So, can anyone help me get rid of this? No bodhicitta. No Yes. Maybe it's more like self-referencing than self-centered. Self. Uh, this one uh, for arahat. No self-centeredness. No self-cherishing. Uh, self-cherishing, but self-referencing. Uh, what do you mean by self-referencing? Oh. Oh yeah, that's quite right. Now, another, you know, if uh, Kathleen is happy about you, then I would, you know, come up with, on behalf of someone else, you know, with a little bit of unhappiness here, unhappiness here. Thing is that, how can one still have this self-reverence if you have, if you have abandoned self-grasping mind? Yes. like existing in a physical body, right? So it's still a contaminated aggregate. So what's there? So... <laughs> um, so Sorry. it's like, there's still a physical... <laughs> good, good, so, good. So there's still a physical body, good. right? So, so they've realized they self-grasping mind is gone because they it's gone, it's gone. emptiness. Yeah. But but they're still like living in this body that, you know, ten years ago or however long yeah, it's yeah, been. Yeah. And and so it's it's I don't know. It's almost like as if the habit of I still Somehow, maybe this is what you meant by stains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like but the connected. Would that be any different than when Shakyamuni Buddha attained Buddha, he was still in a body. So oh, yeah. Oh, great, great, great. So look, so this is such a great debate going on. It's really amazing. Look, so this tells us, you know, how difficult it is to tease about these two. Yeah. 
you know. Okay, look, what? If you don't have such cherished mind, and if you don't have other cherished mind, what would that person be like? Just imagine. Can any can anyone tell me? No self cherishing mind, no cherishing others. What would be that person like? So do you think that? Sorry. Sorry. Spaced out. Spaced out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think that this person without self cherishing mind and self other cherishing mind, do you think that his, this person will say that? Oh, I'm hungry. Do you think he will say this? No. Do you think they will say, oh, we are all hungry? No. No. Why do why don't you think he he will say, I'm hungry? No yeah, because there is no self cherishing, you know. He doesn't care about himself. <laughs> and then why is he not saying, we are all hungry? <laughs> yeah, so he's like a space up person. <laughs> in in coma. <laughs> you know, someone can't see his you. <laughs> like that. So no. So Without these two minds, you know, you cannot really work. Ah. You cannot really work without one of these two minds. It's impossible. So the Buddhas, they are so active in benefiting others. And the sentient beings, ordinary sentient beings, they are so active, you know, in accumulating all negative actions to benefit, supposed to benefit themselves. And they are doing out of this self-centeredness. And the Buddhas, they are doing out of other cherishing. You know, so without these two, You'll be just like space out in karma. Does that mean that the mind has to have an object? Is that, is that what you're saying? Like it has to focus on something and it either has to be me or everybody? If you really want to, you know, remain relaxed, deep relaxed, better not have both of these two minds. It's just karma, space out. Whereas if you want to, you know, work, work either for yourself, you know, make some contribution on this earth, to help others or make some contribution yourself, better have one of these two cherishings. Mm-hmm. So without these two, it's impossible. You will simply remain lost, you know. But do they know they have these? They know they have these. Then. They are Who? Them the but there's no one. So yeah, the arad. The, the yeah. They, are they doing taking this mind deliberately? Which one? The mind of self self cherishing in order to. Work. It's not deliberate. So look. So this cherishing, look, this cherishing comes in association with one's feelings. Cherishing comes associated with one's feelings. Say for example, you know, someone hits you, and because of hitting you, you have an ecstatic, blissful experience. What happened? Oh, please hit me again. You'll say this. Whereas when someone hits you, and there's a pain, you'll say, don't hit. You know, so it's on the basis of the experience. So we associated with this experience. If this is something desirable, then you will say, you know, I like it. If you don't want to have it, you'll say, I don't like it. You know, you cherish, you, you dissociate yourself with this experience. So, now look, the point is that we all have experience. You know, the feelings. Whereas the person in coma, unfortunately, that person is almost like associated, dissociated, you know, from the all different feelings, just in a very subtle state of mind. And because of this, the person really doesn't act. You know? Okay, so now look. Um, what will happen to you? I will say this, and then we'll stop here for today. What happened to you? 
say if you see you know if you see someone being someone having a cut a cut you know a body cut and then you have that unbearable feeling of pain in you what will you do you will say oh please don't do that please don't harm that person yes no yes, yes. and say you know you have a cut you this unbearable pain in you and what do you say please don't do, don't do this to me right yeah. now look you have the pain the other person also has uh, has a pain but your pain is so alive in you <clears throat> so excruciating and with the other pain you know is simply a sense of sympathy and you really feel the pain in you so what will you do oh please you know don't do it or don't do the other but if the other person insists doing that then you know you might leave it like that which look now look you know one person person a and b person a could feel we you know person a feels only one's own pain only one's own pain and the other other person's pain he cannot really you know feel it as though he's experiencing it it's like us when somebody is being you know when somebody when somebody has a car accident do you think that you uh, uh, do you think that you have the same kind of experience coming to you no. in accident no this is exactly what i'm describing to person a so in that case what do you say you want to have the accident or the other person want, you know let the other person have the accident you say, oh, not me you know you might not say that or oh, let the other person but you will surely say that or oh, not me you know which means that there's self-centeredness. Now look, there's another person, person B. He has his own pain, the other person also has the pain, but he sees the other, pain, other person's pain multiplied, you know, by 10 times, 100 times in his experience. He feels 100%, 100 times, you know, unbearable than seeing his own pain. He sees 100% unbearable, uh, 100 times unbearable upon seeing the pain of others than seeing his own pain. So what will this person do? Will he say, I will have the accident or let him, let, you know, the other person have the experience? What will he say? Okay. Because he knows that by having himself having the pain of accident, it's just one. But when he sees the other having the accident, he feels the pain 100 times. You know, so if you compare the two, 100 times pain or one, just one times the pain, you will choose a one-time pain, you know. So therefore, you know, so this person really sees others' pain, when he sees others' pain, the pain that he has within him simply multiplies by hundreds and millions of times. So therefore, naturally he will say, that, don't do it, don't do it, it's so painful to me, you know. Then he would rather dare to, you know, jump himself. So now look. Why this person has this kind of brain, has this kind of mentality, where he sees the you know, pain of uh, other person and getting multiplied to do 100 times in him? Why? And why some other have just, you know, are seeing the pain in others, it's just one, and your pain is multiplied by 100 times. So why? Two different things. No. The bodhisattvas, they deliberately, deliberately, you know, do it. And then they succeed in that. Sorry? They cultivate that. What for? Why do they cultivate that? 
They were all just like us, ordinary beings. Bodhisattvamani, you know, the great Bodhisattvas, who, you know, simply wants to give their lives hundred times rather than seeing the other person, you know, in, simply inflicted with a small pain. Instead of that, right, they would rather jump, you know, their whole life into fire, bonfire. There. Sorry? There's joy there and love there and doing that for other people so they don't have to suffer. So, you know, is it that they were born with that? No. And why? We are so unfortunate to be born with that. Not to be born with that. <laughs> they are so fortunate. What do, why did they cultivate it? To end suffering. Sorry? To end suffering. For, for whom? Everyone. Why? Why for everyone? But originally, you know, he cherished himself more than others. When he first trained in that, he was just ordinary as we are. In fact, the Buddha Shakyamuni now revered as, you know, like up there. We all prostrate, surrender to him. Once he was like a burglar. He was worse than us. And now he has become an object of refuge. You know? So, he started not as a Buddha. He started as ordinary as we are. And, you know, at that point, his sense of thinking is just exactly the way we are now. You know, when we see a pain, it seems multiplied about a million times. When you see other pain, it's just one. And from there he started. So now tell me, what made some people, you know, Despite their nature, that seeing their pain is just multiplied a million times, and seeing others pain is just one, then they try to do the opposite. They don't make the distinction between themselves and others. Yeah. There's not this separation between that entity and... So, but originally they were bugglers. Mm-hmm. Did you realize that self-generation is suffering? Good. Uh, this is the point. So they have been so far-sighted. They've been so far-sighted, you know. They've been so very far-sighted. Say, say, a mother and a small child. A small child, the mother says that, oh, now look, there, you know, um, so the mother is going to be imprisoned for, you know, just for no reason. And someone's just, you know, uh, uh, kind of forcing to be imprisoned. And then the mother is going to give everything to the child. You know, all her belongings to the child. Saying that, now look, these belongings I've accumulated through my effort. I'm, giving it, I'm leaving it in your hand. It is not for you to enjoy, but it is for your education. You should become a great person. Learn it. And should be able to benefit all sentient beings. You know? So that's planned for 80, 40, 80, 90 years. Money. And a child, you know, he can use it in two different ways. One, he can simply go in the five-star hotel with all his, you know, friends, mm-hmm. you know, and then finish that in one month. And whereas, he can use it in a very wise way, living a very moderate life, you know, and use it in education. So what determines that? If the child is far-sighted, as seen by the mother, then would use it in a very moderate, wise way. Whereas if the child is short-sighted, you know, just the immediate happiness, not beyond, just seeing that one month and not beyond, then he will simply waste it in first hotel. Right? So, the Bodhisattvas, 
Just be, not because of Bodhisattvas, because even these, they are not not Bodhisattvas right from the beginning. They are in worse than us. You know, they started from that. So, somehow they got the idea from the teachers or somewhere that look, what you are seeking is happiness, not suffering. Forget about others. Simply your own happiness. What do you have happiness you like to have? 10%? 20 percent? 50%? 100%? Oh, impossible, 100%. How can you get it? If you want to get 100% you know, happiness, then embrace all sentient beings 100%. If you want just 1% happiness, embrace yourself 1%. That's this thing. And Shahadeva in his text, you know, let's read it. It's the... Uh, okay, um, a guided Bodhisattva fast. I don't know if uh, where in it it says, whatever joy the world has is derived from wishing joy for others. Beginning of third page or yeah. okay, whatever whatever the joy whatever joy the world has is derived from wishing joy for others. Whatever misery the world has is derived from wishing happiness for oneself. That's it. This is the thing, you know. So they come to know that the joy, all joys that I have, is in fact derived from wishing others joy. And all suffering that I have is derived from wishing others, you know, suffering. Uh, sorry, wishing, yeah, wishing happiness for oneself or wishing others suffering, you know. So then they implemented it, they experimented it. And from the experiment, they come to know that this is real. And then they start doing it. And then through familiarization, gradually through familiarization, they come to a state of victory where they see their own pain is just one. They see others' pain is multiplied by millions of times, you know, in them. So they become so unbearable in seeing others' pain than his own pain. So therefore, they simply delve, jump into the welfare of others. Right? So this is the cherishing Cherishing others, you know, not simply confined to oneself, but embracing others. And self-cherishing mind is simply, you know, concerned for oneself, oblivious to the, you know, plight of the others. Oblivious. I don't mean to say disconcerned, you know, oblivious. Simply saying, I'm hungry, you know, by seeing the immediate. So, the Shirvakas, they are like the small kid. And, you know, the short-sighted, simply the immediate pain, which is experienced by themselves. Whereas the Bodhisattvas, they are like the mother, you know, giving everything to the child, you know, giving everything to the child, not wanting the child to suffer, you know. So, seeing the pains in others more than seeing one's own pain, you know. Yes. Okay, yeah. You have a question? Yeah, yeah good. So... <coughs> Is it possible for the self-cherishing mind to exist without... Does not self-grasping need to arise first in order to... So I make it this Good. Does self-grasping mind need to arise first in order, order for self-cherishing mind? Because if I don't grasp that my self is being you know, self-sustaining... Very good. Then I wouldn't have the mind that would want to make the distinction between you and me. Good. Very good question. 
Now look, we are now really delving very subtle ones here. Very good question. So, say the Shavakas, they, you know, abandon self-grasping mind. Abandon self-grasping mind, which means that there's no solid self to grasp it as I, you know. Very solid self. But still there's what is known as the conventional self. Mm. The self does exist. Right? So it does exist. Not as so gross as I think to exist as independently. So now look, on the basis of this thinking that oh the self is so independent existent, you know, the ensuing karma is gross. And because of thinking that, you know, this conventionally existent self, conventionally existent self, not the solid self, conventionally existent self. So this self and then you cherish it, you know, of course. The consequence, the karma, is not going to be as gross as, you know, the ones given rise to by the self-grasping mind. But still, you know, there is some flaw in it. It is simply confined to oneself. You know, I'm hungry. I'm, you know, painful in samsara. You know, just this. Confined to yourself. Okay, so, look. Because of self-eliminating uh, the self-grasping mind, you know, a host of afflictions, all afflictions along, along with their respective karmas will be undermined. However, still there are emotions, there are karmas accumulated, you know, on the basis of this self-cherishing mind, you know. Self-cherishing mind which means that, well, I know I don't exist inherently, I don't exist solidly, but I do exist conventionally. On the conventional level, still I don't like suffering. So on the convention level, I need to eliminate suffering. I'm not talking about others. You know, this is self-cherishing. So therefore, right from the beginning, I've been telling you that the self-cherishing mind, you know, in the arahas is not mistaken. But the self-cherishing mind in us is mistaken. Because this is mixed with self-grasping mind in us. So what you were describing just then, the arahat, in that same way, it still has the... Uh, the view of the conventional self, self and, and wanting and to still wanting that conventional self, self. not to suffer. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We stop here.